Hi, welcome back to Tabu. My name's Katrina. I'm joined by Nick, Downey and Darren from Life Financial Solutions. You guys want to introduce yourself? Nick? Sure, I'll go first. My name's Nick Russell. I'm still the sales director and today I'm uh, repping our new merch. Danny? Danny Sovich, co-founder and director of Life Financial Solutions. Uh, Darren Margolis, I run the protection department at Life Financial Solutions. Great. It's the same format as last time. Uh, we're talking about mortgages and protection this time, and we'll kick things off with question number one, which is, what is a mortgage? Mortgage is essentially a loan secured against uh, a property. <laughs> Have you heard that somewhere before, please, Darren? Uh, never heard that in my life. Uh, it's a loan secured against a property, typically medium check to long. episode one. <laughs> It's typically a medium to longer term loan um, to allow someone to acquire a property or raise money against a property. And your role at Life Financial, so Life Financial Solutions is a mortgage broker, is that correct? And what's the purpose of... Okay, so... How does it work? So, yes, I'm a qualified mortgage advisor, um, director of the company, but I specialise in property finance. Mortgage is a big area of our business um, and it equates to quite a significant amount of lending that we do within the business. We have a number of different clients, which I know we're going to touch on shortly from personal to business, etc. Great. And Can I just jump in? Yeah. Because I think we we might miss something here and I think it might be interesting for any, for any, any younger listeners or people wanting to get into the industry. You said qualified mortgage broker. It's probably been a long time, Danny. Can you take us back to what actually that means in terms of how you become a mortgage broker and what you need to do to qualify to become a mortgage broker? Okay, so you don't necessarily need experience in the industry. Um, I, I came from actually a lending underwriting background. So for me, it made sense to make that transition to be a mortgage advisor, for me to be able to look at a loan from the front end and the back end. Um, but to be a mortgage advisor, actually, you could jump straight into uh, the exams, which is called CMAP, Certificate of Mortgage Advice and Practice, which ultimately gives you um, FCA-regulated qualifications that allows you to advise in mortgages, protection, and insurance. Um, you can take courses, you can do a crash course, you can just buy the books, and then it's, um, you know, it's an exam-led qualification. Typically, how long does that, would that take someone on average? Um, depending on how much you want to study, it should take three to four months, I would say. Some people might take six or seven. Some people could do it quicker. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> cool. Uh, I was just going to ask kind of how does mortgage work for individuals versus how they work for businesses? What are the differences? And, you know, how can one protect both an individual mortgage or a business mortgage? If that's Okay. So, yes, you can or a money against a property if you're an individual, if you're a business. So if you're an individual, it's, well, if you're buying a property to live in, you would typically do it in a personal name anyway, for many reasons. Um, and then if you're, but if you're buying a property as an investment, you can buy it in a personal name as an individual or with, with uh, partners, however you want to go about it, or you can own a property in a business. If you're owning a property in a business name, depending on what it is, if it's a buy-to-let investment, then uh, it tends to be an SPV, a special purchase vehicle, which a lot of people are doing these days for tax advantages. Um, the key difference really is taxation um, is one of the main benefits to having a property in a business, or it could be a commercial property, 
where if you're a trading business, you want to operate your business within that premises, then the chances are you're going to own that in a business name. Does that answer the question? Yeah. 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 And I was going to, we're going to touch on kind of protection yeah. of mortgages. So obviously with a, uh, with a mortgage, the, the, the feeling or the logic is that that mortgage needs to be repaid. And if there is a mortgage on a person buying a home, um, if, if they were to become ill or pass away, that mortgage needs to be repaid. Um, there are some lenders that, you know, want that done and not as a term, but they would be more comfortable. And I, I think, again, I think that's, that, that's reasonable to make sure. Um, with a person, husband and a wife buying a property, all you would do is you would put a policy in place in line with that mortgage for the term. So if it's a 25-year mortgage on a repayment basis, which is, I mean, Danny, uh, which is obviously whereby you, you, you make dents into that mortgage each month until there's nothing left, you would have a decreasing mortgage. So the mortgage decreases, uh, sorry, the cover decreases in line with the mortgage. Um, and you would want to have that in place on two very morbid kind of circumstances passing away or becoming ill. Um, and what you would do is you would uh, set that up and that would cover the mortgage. Obviously, you know, not to get into too much detail, but there are other things you may wish to protect. You may want to leave the wife or the husband with a lump sum so that they can look after the kids. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just a question of every mortgage is different. Everyone's circumstances are slightly different and it's finding the you know, the right level of cover with the right provider um, and um, running the two side by side. There is a direct link between mortgages and, and covering these, which is, I suppose, why we, we, we work together, I guess, is the reality. Yeah, I think that, um, if I can add to that. Yeah, sure. I think there is this general myth or perception whereby someone thinks, well, you know, take a husband and wife scenario, husband passes away, they think it's okay, wife can afford to just carry on making those mortgage payments. And even if they can, yeah. lenders won't typically allow that. Mm -hmm. They would typically reassess that individual to mm -hmm. make sure they do have the worthy credit, yeah. uh, the, um, the amount of income that they need to be able to support that loan. So Darren would always make sure within, within the department that we educate our clients to ensure that they understand that actually in that scenario, it's not that simple. The lender won't just say, go on, you carry on, we yeah. sympathize, yeah. you know, so therefore it's imperative that, Absolutely. you know, there's something in place so wife can have that debt paid off or vice versa. And I think if you take it slightly further, someone has a 20 year or 30 year mortgage, it, you need to review that the cover is in line because obviously with you guys, you know, the, the rates end and you, you change things slightly or people borrow money and, and the cover needs to be in line with, you know, how the mortgage or how your status in life is. And we typically review these things every few years just to make sure things are, you know, in sync um, because things change. You know, someone has a baby or they get married or obtain another property. It, it has a, a net effect on what you can and can't do. And you know, that's that's a... It's just a great reason to have a conversation with the client, even if to say, yes, everything lines up beautifully and uh, let's pick it up again in a couple of years or whatever it is. So it's just Does that happen to... frequently? <laughs> that everything aligns nicely? Um, it, yes and no, <laughs> it, it depends. I mean, you know, for example, typically where things change is when you have these markers in life, marriage, kids, inherit some money. You know, there are there are things which will should get your brain thinking, I need to review my... My circumstances, change of job, losing benefits, getting new benefits.
So there, there is always something, I suppose, to have a conversation about. But we don't need to reinvent the wheel. I mean, if, if it sits nicely and it works... Keep at it. Absolutely keep at it. But, you know, we'll obviously advise the clients accordingly and they will normally take that advice because it's researched and it's done, you know, to suit their needs at the time with the proviso that let's constantly look at these things two years, four years. It just depends. You know, you make markers of these things. Perfect. Well, we'll that's great. We'll move on to question number two, which is how much can I borrow for a mortgage? Mm-hmm. And this is... 2021 July. <laughs> that must be the most common question you get from a client. How much can I borrow? Yeah. Oh, um, I need a mortgage. What's the interest rate? Mm. I get that quite a lot. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, okay, so it's very dependent on whether you're buying it to live in or you're buying as an investment as a buy to let. So the principles are the same. So borrowing capacity, if you like, is broken down into two areas. It's initially income led and then it's capped at loan to value. So if you're buying a property to live in, or you're remortgaging the property that you already own and you want a capital raise um, on the property that you're living in, it's essentially going to be focused on your personal income. Um, and every lender has their own affordability calculation, but typically they would work on a, on a capped income multiple of around five times. Um, and then you have your loan-to-value limitations, which could be 90%, which could be 95%, depending on the lender. For a buy-to-let investment, it's rental income focus, so lenders will stress test rental income. And that stress test formula is slightly different across various different lenders, but they all follow the same principle, which is typically led by whether you own it personally or whether you own it in a, in a limited company name. You tend to find that borrowing power, if you like, is stress-tested more favorably with limited companies because of the tax advantages. And then again, you're, you're capped at loan to value. So even if you've got phenomenal rental yield on the property, which based on a lender's of, uh, stress testing calculation could give you 100% lend, you're still going to be capped at, well, these days lenders will go up to 85%, but more often than not, 75%. Well, let's just talk on, on the subjects of mortgages. Let's, there's two two aspects at the moment for me. Is rates are ridiculously low. I mean, I don't think we've ever seen rates this low in our in our lifetime. For one, agreed. And two, the yo-yoing of max LTV because yep. obviously where it was then COVID now where it is again, banks are getting a bit more bullish. Yeah. Do you want to just talk about sort of what's happened over maybe the last two years, how the market sort of yo-yoed or dipped up and down and just. The dramatic changes were probably around COVID in the last couple of years around mortgages. Yeah, do you know what? Even when the Bank of England was at half a percent, everyone was jumping up and down saying this is the lows they'll ever go. It's ridiculous. You know, I've been in the industry for almost 20 years and I remember when the Bank of England um, rate was, you know, three, four percent. Um, <laughs> obviously, it's dropped significantly now. Um, but actually, the, the rates are ridiculously low, but at a certain loan to value, at a certain risk. So I've got clients that are currently sitting at 85%, 90% are coming to me thinking I'm going to get the most phenomenal rate. Mm. But in a strange way, those rates have actually gone up. So what lenders are doing is they're, they're, they're passing on the low rate, but only to what they perceive as the lower risk clients, which is typically anyone under 80% loan to value. Okay. Um, they don't really want the risk of over and above that. So there has been a massive yo-yo effect um, on loan to values, you know, when we hit the pandemic originally, they're all capping their loan to values at 70, 75%. Slowly but surely it's easing now. 80% is okay, 85%, 90%. 
and we're coming into the realms of 95 again but they are ridiculously expensive still what, what at that right at that level or that loan to value or can you just talk about what the rates sort of looking like below 80 and what they're looking uh, sort of in that 1995 area because obviously everyone's like trying to put as little equity as yeah, possible course, right because of course. who wants to put tie all their cash yeah, up absolutely but there's obviously that comes with a balance of well what am i going to pay for this every single month and my monthly liquidity there's a bit of a historic moment about three months ago when we all opened up our mortgage sourcing software suddenly we saw rates under one percent 0.95 percent and it was like wow it wowed the market it was quite revolutionary i would say that's typically up to 75 percent yeah. as you go over 75 percent the rates start to creep up i think if you're looking at around 80 percent, i think you're in um last time i checked it was around in, in and around the kind of the mid twos i would right. say and then it starts to creep up when you go beyond that. Right. So they balance those uber cheap mortgages with a significant jump once you take Absolutely. once they take higher risk or Absolutely. they perceive higher risk. Absolutely. The risk like with anything, like with mm. bridging as well, mm. the loan to value is one of the key factors of risk and then that and then the interest rate will be dictated by by that. And one other thing, let's talk about multiple and income. Yep. Where are multiples right now than the amount you can borrow against your overall earnings? What do you mean by multiple? Well, that's, yeah. uh, there you go. I'm going to pass this over to our <laughs> learned friends. Okay, so income multiple. So to give you an idea, typically lenders will lend up to five times. Some will lend up to five and a half times of income. So for ease of maths, you're on 100,000 a year. You could potentially borrow up to 500,000 pounds. So it's always been around the five times Mark, that hasn't really changed dramatically. I think the only thing that's changed is twofold, really. One is how they're assessing that income. They're not as relaxed as they were. Back in the day, it was, you know, if you're self-employed, they want to see your tax returns, what they formally call SA302s, um, or accounts if you're a limited company, and or three months pay slips if you're employed. Now they're really looking deep into COVID effect. So if your latest mm -hmm. tax return shows, you know, the right amount of income to support the loan, they're still. They're now going to ask for bank statements to have a look at what COVID impact is. You know, within your uh, occupation that you're in. Um, Pre-pandemic, lenders started to get closer to the five and a half times multiple. They're still available, but they've relaxed a lot more. I, I would say the average has been four. Is between four point seven five to five, and there is the odd bank that will go to five and a half, but you have to be on typically 75 to 100 grand's worth of income. The loan to value has to be low and that's quite limited in the marketplace. But they're also going to stress test your outgoings as well. So they're also going to look at, you know, if you've got school fees and what you spend on bills and, and what have you, and that makes a big difference as well. And, sorry, and are they taking into, so if you're moving property, look, if you get, renew your two-year, three-year fix, obviously you don't really have to go through affordability because you're just sticking with the same lender and you show that you've made payments. If you move house, but you took a mortgage payment holiday. Mm -hmm. Have you seen any effects of that from COVID mortgage payment holidays? Not from a credit perspective. And that was quite key because I was probably like every mortgage advisor, I was bombarded with calls when mortgage payment holidays came out. And actually, it was quite disappointing how that was portrayed and how that was publicised because no one really knew the impact of it. Mm. Everyone, you know, I, I made it very, very clear to my clients that just make ensure that you understand that they categorically confirm this won't affect your credit. So it doesn't affect your credit, but what it does potentially do is it gives a perception to the lender. And automatically, if you took a payment holiday, you must have struggled in COVID. That's the perception. Yeah. So when lenders identify if you've taken a mortgage payment holiday, you need to evidence that you, A, are no longer on that holiday, 
B, are you paying that back on a monthly basis or has that been added to your debt? And there's no right or wrong answer there, as long as you're no longer on it. But also, you need to prove that you've not been affected by COVID. Fine, so you don't have any defaults on any other payments, or credit cards and other things that may have impacted as a result. Correct. So and not that's only when did you take a payment holiday, you also couldn't pay X, Y, and Z. So you've had a serious detrimental effect, COVID, on what's happened in your overall credit file. Absolutely. Look, I've had clients that took advantage of these schemes very much like furloughing. I've had clients that run businesses that have furloughed some of their staff and no longer furloughed them. And they've had real challenges in getting right. lending, even you know, even on the basis of actually it wasn't them that was affected. But the perception mm. of a lender is, well, if you furloughed a member of staff, then your business must have had problems during COVID. Yeah, so therefore- Because those are the rules. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it's not always the case, but a lot of people took advantage of the scheme of for, for the right reasons or the wrong reasons, really. So Also, some people might have done it in anticipation of problems and stopped stem the problem before it starts. So who knows? Absolutely. And that's actually being, we would say to Linda, that's being a good business owner. Prudent. Yeah. Is you've seen an opportunity to have a contingency in place, you know, and maybe that person's role was redundant during that period, but it doesn't mean they couldn't carry on finding alternative ways to be efficient, right? Yeah. Good luck telling credit that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was actually going to ask about kind of credit and if you can get a mortgage with bad credit. Do you know what? I, I started the industry in the, in the world of subprime and you could literally have, you know, millions of pounds worth of CCJ. You could have missed every every mortgage payment for the last 12 months and you would get a loan. Hence why we hit credit crunch, right? Yeah. Um, it went from one spectrum to the other. So post credit crunch, all of a sudden, if you had the tiniest of default, no one would, no one will lend. Slowly but surely over the years, that market started to relax now and there's a number of lenders out there that will certainly consider adverse credit um it's, it's all about the story mm -hmm. so why did that happen it's all about when did it happen are you up to date now the more significant the, the, the higher the value in the credit if you like the more historic it needs to be the lower the value in in the bad credit you know the more likely they are to be more lenient towards more um recent issues mm -hmm. so yeah there's a number of lenders out there that will lay to get mortgages but you have to be prepared that your loan to values are going to be a little bit more limited and more importantly it's going to cost you quite a bit more on interest rate as well time well if i can just um reference how covid similar to that how it affected the mortgage department affected us so a lot of people said to me darren you must have been you must have been killing it people must have been literally you know dying dying to get uh, <laughs> say, killing it is a <laughs> killing it, yeah. choice word for your and uh, um not as not as much as you would think what, what we found with COVID is that so first of all the premiums were not affected by COVID which is possibly slightly counterintuitive you would think that it's more risky all that happened was that first of all when I was speaking to clients the conversations were if they were sort of unsure were now a lot more relevant of course um, but the underwriting became very difficult because now there was a whole layer of COVID questions number one have you had symptoms have you had COVID in the last month and if you said yes to any of those, defer for three to six months, which I think is logical. But where it became really kind of interesting is when we were really in the, the eye of the storm you know, last year, they couldn't do medicals because nurses mm. wouldn't turn up to your house and, 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 and take blood from you. So what they did is there, was an, there, was, there were two ways. Either they would come in full, you know, full, 
hazmat yeah, suits, yeah. Literally, like, you know, with gloves and masks and everything, which is slightly scary. Or they would send you a pack with some instructions to take blood from yourself. And what they would do is they would get a nurse to call you. And I had clients calling me saying, Darren, I, I've literally pricked all my fingers. I've got no <laughs> blood left in me. I've taken five liters of blood. Yeah. And it, it, it just didn't work. And it was Just imagining my wife, <laughs> ask my wife to take blood from me. Can you imagine? No, it, it, it's, <laughs> it's, so it was, it, it, it really kind of, there was a panic reaction to trying to get, because everything was on hold for a two or three months. Um, but when they realized it was just completely ill-conceived and things opened up, they did it again. But I had I had a client phone me saying, he sent me up, he said, look, I, I, I don't have any fingers left. I'm, I'm, I'm dehydrated. And I said, well, hold on. But um, did you get in cover? Sounded yeah, slightly dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. Again. Slightly dramatic. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, it's just it's just crazy how these things change and how philosophies changed and you know people who had certain conditions now they were saying no cover if you if you were slightly older had a respiratory condition i was going to say absolutely yes if you had any underlying health issues that, are, that they would attribute to maybe causing greater harm through or COVID or, or being greater open harm. you up to being more susceptible because you know you you had these things they just said no so it was we really had to be quite clever and and, and try and work around these things mm. and we couldn't always because if a guy has you know, a respiratory condition or a blood condition as well, would you believe, older right. older people and, and, and it just became tricky. And then slowly but surely the philosophies changed. People living abroad, which ordinarily most providers will cover these guys, wouldn't do it. And some of them still don't do it because, right. you know, with the cross-border mm. contamination. So, and it changes daily. I keep on getting updates and emails from providers. We are now back to pre-COVID underwriting or... We are almost back to pre-COVID underwriting, yeah. and it's you got to keep you got to keep abreast yeah. of these things quite quickly. And what would be the advantages of obtaining an advisor versus not obtaining an advisor? And okay, is it that? Well, yeah, I'll let you explain. <laughs> okay, so I'll answer obviously from the mortgage perspective. And, Go for it. Um, there's huge value, significantly value, and actually more so than ever during the pandemic as well. Um, going direct to a lender. Well, firstly, how do you know which lender to go to? You know, the amount of hours someone's going to actually have to go and search the market and source lenders and the typical mentality is, oh, I'll just go to, you know, your, your go compare type websites and just search by interest rate, which is naive because, you know, every lender has very different policy, very different criteria. Um, the beauty about going to an advisor, there's so many different reasons. I think the key reasons are, well, firstly, us being able to understand the circumstances of the borrower and actually go to the right lender who is the right fit based on policy and criteria. It's then about sourcing the most competitive product, the product that fits that individual's criteria and circumstances. They also need to be able to get advice on what type of product. Is it a variable? Is it a fixed? Is it an offset? Be educated in those areas. How long do you want that rate for? Two years, three years, five years? Um, identifying the mortgage term, what age they anticipate in retirement, in retiring, is interest only a better fit, is repayment a better fit, it's an absolute minefield. And any anyone that thinks they can go and do that, unless they've got a huge amount of experience, it's very, very difficult. But where, for me personally, other than the first part, which is right lender, right rate, right product, it's then about how you go about approaching that lender, presenting the right story to the lender, making sure the lender understands the positives to a case, submitting an application and actually getting it to offer an approval. 
and the value from our point of view having you know been in the industry for a long time is relationship as well so if something happens there's a challenge along the way you know whereas a borrower going direct they're going to ring that bank and speak to just anyone in a mm. call center we'll ring our relationship someone we can talk to someone we can level with someone that's got some clout that can actually you know overturn a, a mm -hmm. problem or see common sense to get that case to offering completion so they're probably the key reasons why there's huge value in, in what we do versus mm -hmm. going direct to a lender well i can actually testify so life have done my mortgage and i had an issue when i was doing my mortgage and had they not had that relationship with the bank i don't think i would have got that issue resolved and i was able to get over the line very quickly and it was resolved so i can speak firsthand of the benefits of an advisor absolutely relationship is definitely one of the key mm. aspects for sure cool i i could apply exactly what danny has said to 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 the kind of protection side um there is so much to be said for speaking to one person you know if you go direct you may be passed around um you're going to have to wait on the phone um you know i it is so important especially when you're dealing with things which are you know a mortgage is very personal protection is 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 also personal dealing with medical disclosures and and you know i sometimes know things about Danny's clients that he doesn't even know about because it's a different kind of approach and there's a different sort of set of questions um you know, you talk about relationships with your lenders. I mean, having done this for a long time, if I have a problem, I go to the top underwriter. Um, I, I choose my battles very carefully. But certainly, if they can make it work within their rules, they will. There is always a, you know, they need to balance the kind of risk and the commercials. And if it's kind of on the cusp and, and I can, you know, and, and, and it's doable, um, they'll, they'll do it for us because, you know, A, we write all the business with them but b i've spoken to these underwriters for many years and and i think i know when a decision is 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 appealable and normally i'm right because i, I do pick my battles you know and it's not irrespective of the premium you know we, yeah. we we know what we're doing um i think the other thing on you know pertinent to the protection side is trust we have to put these policies into a trust now i'm not saying that the providers don't offer it but i will that's the only time I nag a client, and I and I warn them. I say, guys, it is so important to make sure that the policies are in trust, and I'll explain in a second what yeah. that means. Um, and, and I make a note: two weeks, no answer. Chase them again, and all my clients do trust because I drive them crazy, and they see the value in it. So, what is a trust? You may ask. <laughs> uh, so, put very kind of simply, um, when a person passes away, they um, have an estate, which will include properties, money they have, artwork, you know, everything tangible. And before um, the money can go to the family, they need to get what's called a grant of probate, which is a legal document which makes sure that all taxes that should be paid to um, revenue and customs are paid. If you don't put a life cover policy into a trust, that forms part of that estate. So then you've got delays. That's number one. The other reason why you do a trust is that you list the beneficiaries and we know clearly who the money goes to and you have to you know it's such a thing people miss practically speaking when you're dealing with these things it's a very emotional time it's a traumatic time you, you need the money you know the husband needs the money so that he can continue or the wife or the partner whatever it is um and it, it you know we do it in in five minutes it's a form which we complete with the client we get a couple of signatures i can say very confidently that I don't believe that 
the direct providers will chase as much as perhaps I would. Um, and, and it's because I feel so strongly about it. And uh, you know, to have a policy of a million pounds, not have it in trust, and get hit at 40% when you've got a million pound mortgage is completely counterintuitive. So I think to me that's outside of what Danny said. I think those are you know hugely important reasons. Um, there is a perception that going direct to the provider is cheaper. It's not always mm-hmm. true. And even if not going to provide a slightly more expensive, the value and, and the, the time we put in and the, the constant you know, reviewing and making sure everything is in line, I, I've never had a client say to me, oh, you know, the difference, I don't see the value. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's just, um, you know, I believe in it very strongly. I think as well, we had a situation whereby we had a client that unfortunately, I say unfortunately, um, fortunately had a policy, unfortunately passed away. And actually, we truly believe that had that client claimed directly without our input, yeah. it would have taken weeks, if not months, because mm-hmm. there were challenges with the claim. Mm-hmm. But going back to what we spoke earlier about relationship, um, we were able to get hold of the top people within the provider who mm-hmm. made sure that this claim went through and went through quickly and efficiently. And the last thing anyone wants, you know, when their loved one has mm-hmm. just passed away yeah. and they've invested several thousands of pounds in premiums mm-hmm. is to have problems with getting that money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, having an advisor actually pick up that claim and deal with it whilst they're grieving is, is you can't put a price on that. Absolutely. And to, to, to the other connection that people sometimes miss is that often the husband or the wife or the business partner, they don't know these policies exist. Mm-hmm. Now I can assure you that the providers will not come running for you to say, oh, you have a policy, I know someone. So someone needs to know where that is. And something that, that we do is we make very clear that you have to have this conversation with your family. There is a draw in the house, so everyone has all the safe where these things are. And, and the line is that if something happens, everything is here and they will know, speak to Danny, speak to Darren or whatever it is. And, and that's really important because I suppose everyone is so busy, some partners don't know that their loved ones have got these policies, and if they don't know, they, they'll never know. So it's 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 so important to to make sure that the practicalities of how these things unfold are in place, and that's that's where we specialise. I think. Cool. Well, I think that's answered that question. <laughs> <laughs> I will be getting one tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Maybe after this. Uh, moving on to question number three, which is what are the challenges of obtaining a mortgage as a new business? Personal mortgage, that is, yeah. As a new business owner. Uh, as yeah. a new business owner, yeah. Oh, uh, okay, fine. So, um, challenging <laughs> is the answer. Um, if you're a new business owner, then well, typically every single lender is going to want to see a two-year track record, typically, which means two years accounts or two years tax returns, depending on how you're structured as a business. Um, A lot of businesses can make a loss in the first year, and that can be quite challenging as well, and that's quite normal. A A lot of lenders don't like that, so it can be quite tricky. There are some lenders that do look at very few, but there are some high street lenders that do look at one year's accounts. Um... So ultimately, if you're a new business owner and you know that you're going to want to require a mortgage over the next 12 months, um, you've really got to follow your, you know, your income during that 12 months. We always advise our clients that if you're starting a new business and you've got a planned move or a planned property purchase in the next 12 months, I ask my clients to sort of talk to me during that journey. 
because like any business owner, when you go to file your first year's accounts, the first thing you're gonna say to your accountant is, I don't wanna pay any tax. <laughs> I want this to be extremely tax efficient. And actually that can work against you. Yeah. You know, so you've gotta be quite careful to make sure, yes, you want to be tax efficient, but you know, when you got your first year's accounts, you wanna be able to show enough income. So the answer in short is, you gotta wait a year, potentially. Mm -hmm. There are some scenarios where if you're a professional, if you're a solicitor, you're a doctor, and you spent many years practicing on an employed basis, and you then become an equity partner of, of that business, so you're effectively in the eyes of a lender, if your shareholding is 15, 20% upwards, you're deemed as self-employed. But there's some common sense yep. mm -hmm. there in that scenario where a lender can see that you're still part of that same organization, so they would look at your historic income as well. And will they take, so let's just say you get to your end of your two years and you then want the uh, first two years of a business ownership, do they take everything into account? Will they take dividends? Will they take salary? Will they take, is it, is it a whole plethora of how you earn will be taken into account? Yeah, average really, that out? How, that's a really good question. So typically most lenders will look at your salary and dividends. Most lenders will do that. Um, some, very few, but some will take the most recent which can be quite useful, especially if it's your first two years of trading, you'll typically find the second year will be stronger than the first year because of the investment into the business from, from day one. Um, so that's where it's well suited. If you've had a good strong year in year two, that you, you're gonna be wanting to find a lender that will take the most recent. I then deal with a lot of business owners that don't want to take from their business. They're building a business, they wanna keep, keep cash reserves, they wanna keep their shareholders funds in place, they can continuously reinvest. And then they might have a, a nice healthy profit, but they might only take the minimum basic salary and they might take very little dividends. So we do have lenders that will actually assess their income multiple based on share of profit okay. plus salary, as opposed to based on salary and dividends. And that's really useful for those businesses that don't like to take Definitely. from the business. And as a kind of new business owner, what kind of financial protection can I get or what kind of advice should I be looking for? So if you're a, if you're a new business owner, um, depending on the setup, but the first thing that, that sort of comes to mind is to identify your key people um, and to make sure that these key people, <clears throat> excuse me, um, are protected. So. It, it used to be called key man cover, but it is now key person cover, as it should be, being clearly correct. Um, although some, if you look on some documents, it still references even today key man, which I find astounding. But um, either way, what you would do is, let's say there's three or four people in the business. You, you identify the key people. And the logic being that if any of those key people fell away from the business by way of illness or passing away, what is the financial impact on the business? So unlike personal cover, where the cover is to protect them or their families, this is purely to protect the business. Now, with the new business, it can be a little bit tricky. You might need a little bit of a track record, you know, to be able to establish that, for example, Danny's value to the company is X, Y, and Z. So you may need a couple of years of accounts just to be able to get a feeling for that. And you basically apply a formula, and whether you ask a lawyer, an accountant, or an economist, you'll get a different answer. Um, but but the company receives the money, and the logic is that in the absence of that person, they need to bring someone else in, they need to train someone else up, they may need to pay a recruiter, and you get to a figure. And then what you do is, as 
as with personal cover, there would be the whole underwriting process. The difference being that the trust documents would be, in, you know, for the actual company to be there. They are the beneficiaries of the policy, and that person falls away sadly. The money gets reabsorbed into the company, and then they can carry on. Um, I think a lot of people often think that it's only the top people that are key. And what I found is, you know, you, you may have a, for want of a better phrase, a, a computer genius, a youngster who sits down in the attic doing stuff. Now, if he or she is absent, that may have more of an effect on the business than the MD. And it's about just trying to really get into the nuts and bolts of the business and how they operate and identifying these people. Um, another huge one is is shareholder protection. So, for example, if, if Danny and I were shareholders in a company at 50%, if something happens to me and I pass away, in reality, my wife could march in to the boardroom on Monday morning and have a 50% shareholding and, and 50% voting rights, which is a real problem. Um, ideally, Danny looks have... frightened right now. <laughs> no, no, he's, he's, he's petrified. <laughs> he should be. Um, what you want to have happen is that, you know, so for example, if the business is worth £500,000, we each have £250,000 worth of shares, you would have a policy that would effectively pay my wife £250,000, the money gets absorbed, excuse me, the shares get reabsorbed into the company, Danny can carry on, you know, functioning as a business and can, you know, re reissue those shares however he wants. Um, you'd be amazed how many problems accrue from these things where you have you know, and they'll often be referenced in the, the articles of association and the memorandum where there should be these things in place, and and, and they're not. And as I say, you, you know, to have a, a widow walk into the boardroom with half of the voting power, these businesses fold. Um, let her sell into the sunset with the money because that's what she wants. Let the remaining shareholders have those shares to do whatever they wish, mm -hmm. um, and it's. Uh, and I guess they could be, where it becomes very interesting is you'll have, there'll be a key person and there'll be a shareholder. So you kind of just roll it into one nice neat policy. Uh, those would be the, uh, those would be, the, I suppose the only other one would be, you know, is you can put your life cover through the business in a very, very tax efficient way. Dan, I was speaking about this earlier. Well, we might, that, that I think this brings us on to the next question. Okay, perfect. Uh, question number four, which is what types of financial protection can I get? So if we take it from business perspective and then individually? Yeah. With that, yeah. So so in terms of, of, of the business outside of the couple I've mentioned, what, what businesses can offer is, so obviously you guys will know that you can have sort of, group cover where you'll have like 15 20 people or two or three people and there'll be a a policy which covers them as a group and and that's quite nice the difficulty with those is that they can sometimes limit you in terms of how much cover you can have so typically you would have three four maybe five times earnings now you know if someone is earning say fifty thousand pounds which is which is good earnings uh two hundred fifty thousand pounds may not be enough to pay off their mortgage or to leave to their family so another way to do it is you'd have a life cover policy. It's called relevant life cover, which would be paid for by the business. But the beauty is that it's not coming out of your post-tax earnings. So if you have your own policy and you're paying £100 a month, you would have had to have earned 140 100 you know, depending on your, on your tax bracket. You would have to have earned and then get taxed on that. With doing it through the business, it, 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 it gets written off as a business expense, there is no um, 
P11D implication, which is where there's a tax liability. Um, and it's all put into trust again. You can see I love trust. Um, <laughs> it's all put into trust and uh, the money goes to the, to the right people. Um, you are limited, in inverted commas, to taking those to age 75 because the argument is that by 75, people should have stopped working or would have stopped working. But it's, it's, it's huge. You save on the corporation tax. It is a fabulous way to have life cover in place. Um, and all you have to be to qualify is employed. If you are employed, you, you, you will qualify for, for relevant life cover. Um, I remember when they introduced it, maybe about 10 years ago, people were a bit cagey about how it would work and how HMRC would treat these things, but they are, they pay out all the time and, and, and it's something mm. I push a lot. So we would a, challenge, it, or accountants would challenge us a lot, wouldn't they, saying, yeah. you know, this is absolutely a benefit in kind, it yeah. doesn't make sense, You're, yeah. you've got a life policy that's mm -hmm. there to protect your family. Yeah. The business is trying to claim it back as a business. Expense. How can it not be? And actually, it's probably the only policy that's ever existed um, that where you're not taxed on the way in and you're not you're taxed on the way absolutely out. Absolutely right. And absolutely accountants right. would challenge us, and we we would win because that is absolutely the case. And HMRC have it's 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 been confirmed. Yeah. So it's uh, okay. yeah, it's it's a really interesting one, a really interesting. nice one. Cool. Um, well, I guess that's kind of covers my next, well, the second question bit of that bit of what is the difference between income protection and critical illness cover? So, Maybe. yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I guess it's, it's some people do get slightly. So income protection and critical illness cover cover people becoming ill as opposed to passing away. And what income protection is, as it says, is, is it replaces your income if you're unable to work due to illness or injury. So a typical example would be somebody um, has a, a massive heart attack and they are now off work for a year, for example, or even for six months. Um, they may get some money from from their from their employers. There may be a clause in their contract which says we'll pay you full pay for three months and then it'll you know statutory um, sick pay. Um, what the income protection will do is, and it's linked to your earnings, they will pay you for as long as you're off work for, um, assuming that the policy is set up to circa retirement age, which it should be. Um, I, I, I think it's hugely important. Um, you, you know, unlike critical illness cover, which is a lump sum payout upon diagnosis of a specific illness. So with critical illness cover, you will have a list of 30, 40, 60 illnesses, depending on the provider. And if you become ill and your illness is on that list, you will get a lump sum payout. But as you can imagine, you know, the income protection cover is, is you need to have both in an ideal mm. world. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain why. Um, I always use the example of a personal trainer. Okay, so if a personal trainer loses his leg and has a income protection policy and a critical illness cover policy, he or she will receive a payment because losing a limb is a payment or a part payment, depending on the provider. And if he or she is now off work indefinitely or over a long period of time, they would receive their £2,000 a month, £3,000 a month, or whatever it is, until such time as either they do something else or they return to work or they get a prosthetic leg or whatever it is. But for someone like, say, Danny and I, if we lost a leg, heaven forbid, we would be unlikely to succeed on an income protection plan because the truth is, as difficult as it is, we could probably do most of our role 
without that, but a mm-hmm. personal trainer couldn't. So the way to make sure that you hedge your bets, I suppose, is to cover both. And then you know, you're never going to, or un- far less likely to have an illness where you, you don't get a payout um, that way. So, so those are the main differences. Um, and they work side by side. Um, you also may have an illness which is on the list, but you're not off work because mm-hmm. you know, medical science is quite advanced and they can get you back to work quickly. So um, the two run side by side and everyone should have both of them. Um, and it's, it's, it's hugely important. Interesting you say off work. Is that one of the key... Di- am I right in saying that one of the key differences that with a critical illness, you could, in theory, be diagnosed with a critical illness and be back, and at, work. Be back at work and you'll still pay out? Absolutely right. But with income protection, yep. um, you actually physically have to prove that you can't work. Yeah, there is no list of illnesses with income protection. The, the, the general definition is anything that renders you unable to conduct your own occupation. And if, if you cannot, and there are various tests that they apply, but if you cannot conduct your own occupation, then you fall under the, the, the heading of income protection. But as you say, you could someone could have a massive heart attack and be back at work in two or three weeks and and claim on in, on on, on um, critical illness, and they may not need to claim an income protection. So, um, yeah, it's um, it's 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 a heavy one, but it's it's <laughs> yeah. It's don't ever really want to claim. Like yeah, I'm very scared that yeah. I have none of these. Moral of the story: Don't lose a limb. Don't lose a limb. Um, if we go on to final question, uh, question number five, which is how can financial how can financial protection help landlords and property investors mitigate inheritance tax liability? Ooh, that's a tongue twister. Mm. <laughs> so, obviously, in in, in Danny's day to day, he deals with a lot of sort of landlords and, and and guys who have property portfolios, and 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 that again forms part of their estate. So when these guys sadly pass away. There is there is an inheritance tax on that portfolio. Uh, typically, it can be up to forty percent. So again, simple maths. If you have a million pounds of of, of assets, um, four hundred thousand pounds of that could be taxed. And if your plan and you've worked your whole life to leave that to your family, it becomes counterintuitive. So what you would do is you would have a policy, a life cover policy, which pays that liability so you would say let's set a policy up for four hundred thousand pounds now where it differs from sort of you know other insurances if someone has a mortgage and that mortgage is going to expire in 25 years time the term of that mortgage the term of that cover would be 25 years right makes sense but because no one knows when they're going to pass away what you would do with sort of these these inheritance tax policies there is you would have them on what's called a whole of life basis which means there is no expiry date. So whether the chap passes away tomorrow or in 50 years' time, whatever the pot of money is set at, that will pay out. They are more expensive by definition, of course, um, because they are a guaranteed payout. Um, but what I often do is, 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 is the conversation is, well, Darren, that sounds great, but when I'm 65 and I retire, I don't want to pay those premiums because I'm now retiring and I'm gonna, I don't want to use up my pension, you know, whatever it is. So my answer, and it's received relatively well, depending on who it is, is let let the children contribute towards that because ultimately they are going mm-hmm. to be the ones who are going to be receiving the money less 40%. Um, 
Um, you can do it on an individual basis. You do it with a husband and a wife. Um, there's no inheritance tax between um, husband and wife, but it, it's more to do with the kids and wanting to be able to get the full net value of these properties. Um, and um, again, they're in trust. Of course they are. Because <laughs> how could they not be? Yeah. Cool. Um, the theme. Yeah, trust. Um, yeah, I guess that covers everything today. If you guys have anything else to add? No, no I think both yeah. you guys are great. Very succinct. Yeah, it's been great to, to have understand. you both. I think you did brilliant. I've now got a long list of things I need to go and research <laughs> and come contact you guys for. But. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you very much for having Thank us. Thank you for having us. Uh, Pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for watching. That's been Tab U, uh, Mortgages and Protection. Make sure you like, subscribe, comment, and share. And I'll see you next time. Bye. Peace.